What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real life stories from big hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. So today on True Power, I am absolutely thrilled to be welcoming Craig Johns. Welcome, Craig. Hi, Cassandra. So good to be on the show. I'm really excited to talk with you today. So let's start with a bit of a a, a bio, which is a very impressive bio, Craig. So Craig Johns is a 10 times national sport champion, international coach and CEO turned high performance leadership expert. He's also a keynote speaker and the host of the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast, where I was recently lucky enough to be a guest. That's where Craig and I first started speaking. Craig has an obsession of the human behavior, performance and nurturing rising talent. So we have that in common, Craig. Uh, Craig has lived in five countries, has 28 years of international experience working in sport, health, mind, education and the hospitality industries. And he also knows the highs of playing for New Zealand's most winningest sports team. And we just had a little chat about whether winningest is a word. We decided it, if it's not, it should be. <laughs> New Zealand's most winningest sport team, the Stratford hockey team, who incredibly went, un- went unbeaten for 272 games. He's also uh, won national titles across four individual sports, being triathlon, duathlon, mountain biking, and cycling. Now, Craig, that's an impressive bio, my friend. (laughs) What have I missed? (laughs) No, that's enough. (laughs) Oh, surely there's more. (laughs) What else do you think the listeners? You're also a proud dad. That's an important one. That's the most important one. That's the most important one. What else? What else do you think people should know about you before we dive into the conversation? um that i have flatlined three times flatlined mm. oh okay that's a serious one there's an open loop for you well, <laughs> you can't leave us hanging with that are you willing to share a little bit more about these experiences yeah, yeah, I, can, yeah I can dive into that so uh so since i was a little kid so i mean a, a nice little backstory to this my first week at primary school, I won the cross country, I fainted and I got hit by a baseball bat and had to go to hospital and get stitches. So I still have a scar above the eye. And, but that was kind of the first sign that I had something wrong with my heart and we couldn't pick out what it was. Um, but between the ages of five and 12, I would faint three or four times a year. Now that's quite unusual. Most kids may faint up to three or four times. During their primary school years, mine was sort of three or four times a year. And then it stopped. Um, it didn't really affect me with sport every now and then. Yeah, I think maybe once I had to kind of stop during sport during those eight, uh, those years. And then when I was 16, I come off like the biggest swimming camp of my life. I was absolutely flying, loving what I was doing. Got up on New Year's Day and at six o'clock in the morning, went to go to the bathroom, fainted, and I was out for... My dad thinks over well over five minutes. So he had just had his first hip 
replacement a couple of weeks earlier was on crutches. My mum and my sister at the cow shed. And so dad's trying to, like he said, he didn't know if, he didn't know, he really didn't know if I was dead or alive, like, cause he couldn't bend over. So he's trying to hit, he's whacking me with the crutch type thing. Um, I finally came to, he couldn't do anything. So he rung the cow shed mum and my sister went "Oh, Craig and dad are at home. They will answer the phone. So they didn't answer. So dad had to hobble. Uh, uh, oh no, what is it? Maybe a good 200 meters to the cow shed. Uh, fine mum and that they came back, but I couldn't move off the floor for over half an hour. And so they finally got me up. I got into dad had a bed in the lounge because of his hip replacement. And so I'm, I go back to sleep. I wake up at around nine o'clock. I go walking towards the kitchen table and I go, look, Hey, great. What a great day. I'm going to go for a 40 K bike ride. I'm going to go. And I fainted sideways into the bookshelf. And so I was out for a good two and a half, three minutes. At that point, they got the ambulance in and, and rushed me off to hospital, went to intensive care, did the paddles, everything there. And so I was having atrial fibrillation and vasovagal syncope, which, are, you know, atrial fibrillation is an irregular heartbeat you normally associate with heart attacks or more um, people more mature, a little bit older. And so I was having this happen. And then, you know, on the ECG, you would see me flatline for a good 45 to 60 seconds. And then it would start beating again. It was really erratic. Um, and so obviously very concerned. I was in that state for about three weeks, which gets quite dangerous. Once you're kind of past sort of 10 days to two weeks, you have a high risk of stroke if you're in that, that state of heart um, beat. Um, they, at, at that point they were like, look, you're going to have to give up sports. That was the first time I got told to give up sports. That's one of three. Uh, and look, after a couple of weeks of talking with the best cardiologists around the world, I'm like, no one can explain to me one, what is causing this two, what is really wrong. And three, if there's going to be any issues, if I go back to sport. And so they said, look, you know, look, we're going to leave it up to you. We can see you're very ambitious. We can see you kind of take care of yourself really well you're just going to have to listen to your body. And so kind of eased back in and by the end of the year had made uh, New Zealand squads in field hockey and triathlon. Um, so I was kind of like, there's no one's going to hold me back. And, and really from that day, every time I woke up in the morning, I was like, thank God I'm alive. So I had a very different approach to, to life than many people. And I had a very, very different approach to sport than many athletes who, um, you know, are so intensely focused and their whole identity is around being an athlete. For me, it wasn't. Uh, so everything was going all right. Went off to world championships uh, in triathlon. And then when I was 21, I started fainting three or four times a day. So not 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 a year, three or four times a day. Um, so there were times where I was holding two, uh, there was one time I was holding two 18-month-old kids, some teaching in the water, could feel myself about to go, rolled out, put them down and rolled out to the side of the pool. So I was very lucky I was close to the side and all my, you know, my colleagues knew what was going on. And actually one of the mums had a pacemaker, had her heart problems. So it was where she built a really good bond after that. Um, from there, they put me into hospital. Um, sorry, during that phase, they put me in hospital with a suspected heart attack. I had, I was in the red zone of Auckland hospital. I had multiple people dying, being resuscitated next to me. And I'm going, I don't belong here. The, this I'm fine. The doctors misread the ECG. It's an athlete's heart ECG. Um, I'd studied a bit of medicine. So I kind of knew roughly that it was okay. 
And they said, look, you know, we'll know within two to three hours whether you've had a heart attack or not, because they can test certain things. There's a certain hormone in the blood that they can test. And one of the ladies who was actually, I actually taught her daughter for swimming, come up to me, you know, a couple of hours later and said, oh, by the way, you're going to stay in tonight. And that was, you know, for me being someone who's like 10 foot tall and bulletproof, um, not literally like kind of figuratively, I always kind of, you kind of had that mindset, you know, I've broken arms before. I've been in hospital with heart problems. I've been told to give up sport. I'd come back. Um, but this time was probably the first time I went, you know what, maybe there's something a little wrong here. And, and obviously um, woke up the next day and they went, Hey, look, you know, you're okay to go. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I kind of let it go. Um, and they were doing more tests over the next sort of few weeks. And they said, look, the only thing we can do to stop you from fainting, because at that time I had to give up driving, giving up some teaching, coaching. I had to give up my last, um, exams for my, my first degree. And, uh, though literally this is the only way you can live. Um, or, or live without fainting all the time. Um, that's all we can do. We, we don't know what else to do. And so we had the pacemaker put in. I gave up sport for a couple of years, went back to it sort of three or four years later. And that's when I won my first national title, went on to 10 more. Um, had to give up sport for the third time because uh, or was told to because I had a hip replacement and a second pacemaker. And then the final time where I was flatlining again was... Um, where I was working. And I think we're going to talk about more around the situation a little bit later on, uh, which was, where are we? 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago now. Wow. Mm. Well, that's quite a story. Mm. And one question that comes to mind on all of that is, Craig, you mentioned that you had this kind of sense of appreciation for being alive and and perhaps that you weren't so fused with these identities as the elite sports person or the student or you know these identities that so many of us kind of find ourselves fused to and that can't can't let go of and so do you think perhaps that appreciation of of of, of being alive and almost that decoupling from those identities earlier on in your life helped you to be able to navigate all, all those moments where things were taken away from you I think so. I think it's a lot around, yeah, I think just being very grateful. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Oh, uh, it, it's going to connect with this. So recently we had a conversation in a restaurant and I'm sitting there. I've got my business partner um, who is quite, has um, quite a high faith and goes to church, et cetera. We had a couple other people, one from Turkey, one from, uh, I think it was Korea, and so we're quite a diverse group of people. And we were talking about what was religion and, uh, you know, talking about that, what happens when, you know, later on in life, when people pass away, do you believe in the afterlife? And, and my answer was, I'm appreciative of the times I'm with people. Absolutely appreciative. I can only control what I can control right now. And that is the time I have with those people and the time that I can have right now and the impact I can have on the world, good or bad, hopefully it's good. And, but in regards to someone passing away, yes, I, I will be sad and grieved, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm content that I have enjoyed the time with them. I've done whatever I could to be with them. And, and I will really, really cherish those memories, but I'm not worried about the afterlife in a way. So for me, I am just, 
purely present. And I think I've kind of always been like that, but really it made me appreciate that when you get something taken away from you or, or they feel like they can take it away from you and you're like, you know what? No, I, I'm just going to live my life. If I die tomorrow, well, I've, I've enjoyed my life. I've given as much impact as I can. I've tried to be as good a person as I possibly can. Yes, I'm going to make mistakes. But I'm not hanging on to any any identity apart from that I'm Craig Johns living in this world. And whatever I get to do during that time is an absolute bonus. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful and it's rare because I, you know, coaching and supporting and having been myself kind of like this corporate high-flying, high-performing executive, there's so many of us who don't have that level of anchoring to who we are. So many of us find ourselves attaching our self-worth to what we do and what we have, um, the roles we play, the accolades we collect, the performance we deliver. And so uh, I, I think that's a really beautiful and healthy perspective and an anchoring to who you are, not just what you do and what you have, which of course are outputs mm. that that flow when, when we when we um, have this sense of enoughness that comes from within us, not from our, our external achievements or status or success. Yeah, 100%. And look, yeah, I'm very driven for things. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm very focused on achieving outcomes and being able to, to achieve something and, and really push the limits on things, 100%. But I know my time and place. Like I know that it's not 24 seven to be focused on something. And, and there probably was times where you do fall into that trap or fall into that space, but it was very short lived, whether it was having the right people around me, or I was able to have enough self-awareness to recognize it. But I think, you know, it, it's, it's, you've, I, I get, I, I find it fascinating sometimes where people can't, they they don't seem hungry for anything like and I think you need to be. Um, you've also got to be healthy and you've got to be happy and you know that kind of three things I've always lived on. And when I was twelve years old, I asked that question: Why aren't people healthier, happier, and hungrier for success? I I, I for me my mindset was uh, super clear what I wanted to do in life, super clear about achieving something. I wasn't going to waste my time on this earth. And, you know, like I'm someone who doesn't sleep in, I, I should get frustrated if I accidentally sleep in, in a way, because I want to maximize the daytime, <laughs> nighttime, I want to sleep, because <laughs> I know I need to recover, <laughs> but daytime, I want to be alive, I want to be doing stuff. So, mm. um, but I'm very grateful that, yeah, I just get to be here and live it every single day. Mm. I love that, that, that uh, lens you bring around that the hunger and having worked with lots of people who on the outside see confident, but in, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations in the coaching context kind of reveal their, their secret struggles of feeling like they're not enough and, and their deep lack of confidence. Like, I wonder, as you're asking that question, why aren't people hungrier? You know, I think about these younger parts of self who carry these burdens of believing they're not enough. They're somehow flawed. Um, and, the, the absence of hunger, perhaps through that lens of internal family systems and modality I use in my coaching, what looks like a lack of hunger, I wonder on the inside for people actually is perhaps a lack of faith in oneself and one's enoughness, one's uh, power and one's potential. Question could be. Mark. Yeah, it could be. I mean, if you look at those three things, right, I've seen super talented people 
super talented people um, who might be really driven for something. So they're hungry for success, but they're not, they don't eat healthy or they may not be happy. So they may have one or two of the three, but they very rarely have all three. And it's the same. You might see someone really happy, but they're not healthy and they're not hungry for anything. I'm like, well, why not? You're on a, you're on the planet for a short time. Why not maximize it? Or you get someone who's super healthy, but is unhappy and, and not driven for something. So it's quite rare you see all three come together. And I feel it's a, like for me, I feel it's a, a bit of a shame sometimes when I see that. However, the more you grow older and get wiser, you start to understand that there are other things at play that might be occurring that. So it's, it, it's stories they're telling themselves based on experiences they've been in most likely or the environments they've been in. Maybe they had super... Uh, had parents and that were really talented, but were lazy as well. Or maybe, so, or, or they had really happy parents, but they weren't hungry for anything. They were just kind of content with life. And that's okay too. I kind of get that now, but I still, I'm like, oh, what if we could get all three right for everyone? That'd be fun. That would be fun. Yeah, I, I love the model. It's a really unique one and it's a powerful one of those three elements. I see it like a Venn diagram in my mind. <laughs> uh, beautiful. So, Craig, if we could now kind of talk a little bit more about your own journey um, to figuring out who you really are at your core um, and cultivating this this sense I get with you of you know this faith that, that who you are is enough and 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 um, really embodying the qualities that make you you the unique qualities that make Craig Craig is really um, one of the keys to living a happy and fulfilled and healthy happy life. So mm-hmm. as I've explained, a lot of the conversations I'm having on this podcast is around normalizing the struggle of being true to ourselves because it's not easy. It's really can be very tricky. So I wanted to ask if you might be able to share with us a story about a time when you realized you were not being true to yourself. Yeah. Okay. Good, good question. I like it. Uh, so I'll go back to 2012. I had, it was kind of, it was a really big year, actually. I moved from Taiwan where I was, I'd just come off being national head coach of the triathlon team at the national training center very similar to the Australian Institute of Sport for those who are in Australia um, and or the US Olympic Committee if you're in America and was based in there, had set up my own business, was doing really, really well, uh, had the number one online training uh, endurance coaching business in Asia. Uh, you know, was really successful in that. I wanted to scale it and I brought in coaches who are way better than me but I found it was very difficult when it's based around a human being to start with. If you base a business on a human being, it's very hard to scale because it doesn't matter how good everyone else is around you. People come to you because you have created the successful business. And so I decided to, that I wanted to take a shift from being in the world of sport to my kind of second desire in this world, which was to be a CEO of a large big company. And so I wanted to do a kind of a transition period where I go away, do my master's in management um, externally, and at the same time, earn some money and be able to share the world with Julie. And so I accepted a role in Saudi Arabia, working at an international school, uh, which was great. 15 weeks holiday a year, uh, 15, yeah, 15 weeks holiday a year, uh, et cetera, except my wife couldn't get a visa there. She got denied four times 
And so we I accepted a role in Thailand. They've been chasing me for a while and which was pretty much a dream job, um, which I'll share in a second. And the day I went back to Saudi Arabia and and after being at this place and getting offered the role, they said, oh, by the way, we have been through the royal family and got your wife a visa. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> and I'm like, well, unfortunately, I've got a opportunity of a lifetime. And, you know, how do you think my wife feels now that they've already denied her four times? Does she, you know, does she really want to be here type thing? And so I gave them three months notice and they gave me seven days to leave. Um, so that was entertaining because at that point, Saudi Arabia was probably the hardest country in the world to get into and the hardest country to leave. And so anyway, got out just in time. I think I managed to sign the last thing two hours before the flight left and managed to get out, but then moved to Thailand. And so we had this 250, uh, sorry, are we? 150 million US dollar project. And it was first of its kind in the world where we were integrating sport, mind, health, education, hospitality um, in Phuket. And literally we would have the best athletes in swimming and triathlon, triathlon and tennis. So you had the Maria Sharapovas. We even had Jensen Button, the Formula One driver. Um, so from a sport perspective, everyone from like complete beginners and people losing weight through to your world champions, et cetera. Uh, from a health point of view, we had kind of the, some incredible doctors in their, in their fields from general practice through to sports medicine to uh, world-leading stem cell regeneration to anti-aging. The mind side of things was anything from a standard consult through to a two-month science retreat. We were dealing with the Dalai Lama. Uh, the school, international school, was a world leader in emotional social learning. And then we had multiple facility, uh, multiple accommodation sites. We even had an organic farm and a six-star organic retreat up in the rainforest in Cal uh, Sok. Uh, and, and just amazing, amazing, amazing setup and incredible people. And so I had the opportunity to be number two. So two I see there. And, uh, you know, you've got probably the healthiest place on the planet. You've got amazing people around you. Uh, where are we? Nearly a year into it. It was nearly a year being there. Uh, I ended up back in hospital. And so literally I had worked... 70 to 80 hours a week for 302 days straight, loving every single minute of what I was doing. Um, as you can imagine in an organization like that, we were kind of just newly opening and pre-opening some aspects of it. We were we had huge egos because we had the best of the best in each area. My job was to integrate everyone, create these world-leading integrative packages and the push and pull. So every email, every conversation, every document, Every movement was a different, you know, it could be from mind to sport to um, politics to, <laughs> to education. Everything's moving the whole time. And so you're on and it's exciting and, and you got like 500 staff from 22 countries. Everything's happening. You know, this is my first C-suite role. This is my first time leading a, a company of this size. You know, I'd gone from everything I knew in coaching sport for, uh, at that point, probably 17 years of coaching sport right through to international athletes and doing sports science, Olympic and world champions, things like that, to now being in a space where I'm 29 years old. And uh, so, yeah, sorry, can't, where am I? 
no, not 29 years old. I'm older than that. <laughs> I would have been a little bit older than that because 17, yeah. So uh, what am I? So 30, I'm 33 years old at that point. So still very young in that space. I have peers there that have I've either raced with or worked with before or no. And now I am the boss in a way. And so you're trying to live in a space where you're trying to do your best. You try to figure everything out. You, you're making sure you don't look like a fraud, you know, the whole imposter syndrome. I um, probably didn't recognize any of that then, but you just naturally are trying to make sure that you are doing, you look like you know what you're doing. And in some, in most cases I was, I knew what I was doing. Like I'm not, I wasn't stupid and I wasn't in the role because someone said, oh, you're a nice person. Like I, I knew what to do in these different situations. But you also got a lot of pressure. You got a billionaire owner. Uh, you've got some, you know, a CEO who's had massive amounts of experience. And literally, we're, you know, so so the one aspect was that I, I ended up in hospital again. I had, you know, it was flatlining again. So I had that component. But the other thing, and so for me, what was happening actually? So let's go to that one for being true to myself. Here I was, the most healthiest place on the planet, was doing everything opposite of what it would take to be a high performing person. And I still remember about a week before I did go into hospital again, the CEO said to me, he said, I don't get you, Craig. I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, well, everything that you did as an athlete, as a sport coach, you're not doing here. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, well, you're continuously working. You're not recovering. Um, you're you're not delegating as much as you should be. You're trying to take everything on. This is completely different to what you've always done. And I didn't really recognize it until probably a week later when I'm sitting in hospital looking at the roof going, you know what? This is not the first time. This is the third time I I need to do something about this. And so I had put on 14 kgs at the healthiest place on the freaking planet, right? <laughs> and so I wasn't being true to myself, who is someone who has always exercised, who has always really looked after themselves, has always put, you know, sleep first before um, other things. And I was putting everyone else first. I was putting everyone else first. So there's that component. The second component was too, is I wasn't equipped at that point to deal with high level demands. And when you're dealing with billionaires, they've got a lot of money. But they're also and and they will spend a lot of money, but there's also a lot of pressure involved in that because it needs to be a return. And the where I really wasn't being true to myself as I wasn't standing up for when the either the owner or the other CEO would come to me and go, um, that person needs to be removed by the end of the day. Right. And and at times I just, I just felt like I had to do it. Like I rather than actually standing up and going, no, let's reconsider this. This may not be the right person. And some I had known for a long time and had just about to finish their probation. And literally we we're bringing them in, you know, the, um, their families are about to fly across from the other side of the world. Like, so all sorts of things were happening. And I was in a position where I I felt like I didn't have much of a choice and I just went along with it. And what was interesting is they initially brought me in to be, to train me up to be the CEO. And I said to them after that first year, I said, you realize I cannot be the CEO. 
I said, because there is zero, I said, we, yes, I get along with the staff and do really well, but there is zero trust because they're not sure if they're next on the chopping block. And I said, you can't, there, there's no way I can rebuild that reputation in CEO. And so I knew at that point that my tenure there would only be two or three years. And, and so those lessons from that was to, you know, as you say, be true to yourself in what do you believe in and stand up for that? And don't just jeopardize that based on keeping people happy or keeping the peace or, or um, let's just roll with this because they should know more than I do. And then the second one was to really look after yourself and you've got to lead yourself before you lead others. And so that were two massive lessons in that, in those couple of years that I was there in Phuket, amazing place, incredible people. We achieved a lot, uh, enjoyed a lot of it, but also I learned huge amounts around what does it truly mean to be a leader and what does it mean to really be yourself as well? Mm. What a powerful story, Craig. And if I can ask a couple of questions, because there's, there's so many questions that were going through my mind as you were sharing I mean, I think the first question, when you think about that first part of the drifting away from who you really were in, in this um, dynamic you found yourself in, which was over-responsibility for others and under-responsibility for self, that you'd let go of some of these foundational self-care, your sleep, your nutrition, your movement, recovery, like those things had had been put aside so what have you figured out about what was going on inside of you? Because I speak to lots of leaders who have over-responsibility for others and under-responsibility for self. So what have you figured out about what was going on inside of you that that led to that, that dynamic? Yeah, and I see it happen with quite a few people. So I come from a very service-orientated um, family. So my... Um, on my dad's side of the family, lots of coaches, you know, coaches and sport. Um, and, you know, dad was always coaching lots of sports. He was also on the committees for school, committees for sport. My mum is a nurse and and their families were involved in cricket and coaches in there as well. And, and mum's always been very service minded. So I come from a very service driven family. And I see this all the time. People that go work in not for profits or very service mindset will give and give and give and give and give and give. Everything's about everyone else. As a as an athlete coming through, I was always able to balance it because I was a coach. I would, I'm I'm giving, I'm in service to help people be uh, more high performing, whether I was leading, et cetera. Um, you know, people have always said I'm a natural manager leader along the way. So it's always been there, but I've always had that self component as well because I was an athlete. So I had both sides to balance it. By the time I got to Thailand, I, when I had the hip replacement, the second pacemaker, so leading up to going to Thailand, I was still racing, cycling and mountain biking up and and I did I think one race in Saudi Arabia and at that point I knew I'm like I don't have the competitive side of me anymore. I, I just don't feel that passion to race at that level anymore and so I stopped sport and my whole focus was service driven I, I was so focused on how can I help create this amazing environment for everyone else to work at to to be healthier at, to free their mind, to become better athletes, everything. Everything was on everyone else. It was never on me, ever. Um, some people may have viewed it 
looked like for me. I mean, because I had to fire people and do all these sort of things and maybe sometimes I become micromanaging, that wasn't about me. That was about trying to give and serve and it didn't serve anyone well, including myself, obviously. And so it's so important. You've got to have something for yourself to focus on if you are very service-minded. And so I am fortunate right now that I have a baby girl um, who's helping in that, but I still need something for myself. My, my role, what I do is giving and giving and giving all the time. And I'm really trying to find that thing for myself at the moment too. And I think this is hard for a lot of parents because you're either you're working and you're being a parent. It, it, it is your, you feel like you're giving all the time. And so what is that thing for me? And, and I'm at that crossroads at the moment again. I'm like, what can I find? And I'm like, I can't do a triathlon because I've done plenty of those. And I'm not, I'm not interested in just being middle pack when you've been a national champion. It doesn't quite fit in the psyche or I haven't quite let go of enough of that yet. Um, I don't know what it is yet. And I'm, so I'm, I'm really seeking what that is at the moment. And I feel that will really help our family, uh, the business continue to scale um, and myself long-term. So that that's kind of the fun one I'm trying to lean on at the moment. And I, I think I know what the solution is. And that's going back keynote speaking next year. So I feel that is the the one it is kind of been drawing out of me actually now I think about it it is the one so but I still want something from a sport perspective as well maybe that's the one I'm still searching for but from a individual it's keynoting even though it's all about everyone else it is still all about yourself as well like it, it's a it's a whole different game to coaching or facilitating etc or running a mm -hmm. business mm. thanks for explaining all that I, I think so many listeners can relate right and and if I can share you know, how I've walked that path as, you know, mum of two boys and having come from, you know, a similar sort of crucible experience in my career where I was flying back and forth to London with two young babies here in Melbourne and 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 the heartbreak and the 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 grueling nature of that, um, of trying to be this high performance executive, global executive, and and in that same time probably neglecting what I needed to take care of myself and feel connected to my family. And certainly for myself, it's an ongoing practice, right? Because I know that part of me who has a tendency to over-responsibility for others and under-responsibility to self is a part of me that as a young girl attached her self-worth to being a high achiever. Mm. And so, you know, even now, even with all the therapy work I've done, you know, I'll catch myself at lunchtime thinking to myself, I don't have time to take a lunch break. I've got too much work to do right um and so in those moments I'll, I'll have to have a little quiet word to little miss achiever and say sweetheart we we deserve a lunch break <laughs> you know and so it's also for me about the mindset and the practices as well as the activities you know like this the sporting activities or the other things the activities it's also for me predominantly about um the way I speak to myself and the mindset I bring that I am worthy of care I just like everyone else is worthy. And, you know, I always think of the test, like if I wouldn't say that thing I just said to myself to a friend, like I'd never say to my friend who works out the, outside my office here, hey, Kate, what are you doing taking lunch break? Don't you have those emails to do? <laughs> you know, I'd never say that to her. So why do I say it to myself? And so that, that's that where I'm at in my practice, really mm -hmm. just extending myself the same care and compassion I would to anyone else and, and really being able to receive that and 
there's parts of me that still resist it because they just want to be high achieving, low maintenance machines. Yeah. But, but more and more I'm softening to, to receive that self-care that we all need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's key. I think you've got to, you, you first got to lead yourself before you lead others. And it sounds, uh, it's, it's selfish and that's important. It's not self-centered. You can't come from a self-centered place come from a selfish place before you can be a self before you can be selfless for other people. And quite often we try people either shift into that space of being self-centered or they shift into the space of being selfless, but we need to be self uh, selfish so that we can be selfless properly and, and really yeah. be able to give our hundred percent. And that's not easy. It, it's, it's not easy. There's no simple formula to it. It is going to push and pull. Uh, I still, I, I talk about burnout, burnout being a choice and, and it's a hundred percent a choice. And to be quite honest, no one really has an excuse to have burnout except when they become a parent. When you're a parent with little kids, I don't think you really have a choice of getting, if you, if you want a career and you're trying to be there as a parent, um, when they don't sleep at night, cause sleep deprivation in that setting is so different to like, I don't know any other fatigue that gets close to it. I've done Ironmans. I've trained 40 hour weeks um, in hot, humid conditions. The fatigue of or continued fatigue of being a parent is, is, is tough. And I've got a good kid. I can't imagine what it'd be like to have a kid that does not sleep at night, that screams a lot. Like I, I'm fortunate. And so, um, you know, you, we all have choices in life and, and you do make that choice to become a parent and you do, you, you should be aware of what the potential effects are going to be on you in regards to your health um, and into your mental health. And you've got to figure out ways to try and break that. And uh, it's hard. Like you want to give everything to your child. You still want to give everything to your career, <laughs> uh, but you, you have to look after yourself and it is the toughest challenge. And so I think people need to be really cautious of the choices they make in life. And even if you're making choices for the right reason, how are you going to navigate that to ensure that you can always bring your best? Mm. Yeah. And it's so difficult. I remember there was that post on Instagram years ago that said, we have to work like we don't have kids and we have to parent like we don't work, you know, it's so difficult right and I think I would I would add to what you say there Craig about you know also if we're living with a mental health challenge or a disability or something else that impacts our sleep or our ease within our bodies it equally or more challenging and so that we all have our struggles right and you know in amongst those struggles how do we continue to take care of ourselves and build this fun foundational vitality that we need to access our courage and our clarity and our compassion and um, our creativity and our playfulness and all the things that make us the fabulous humans we are, it's not easy. Uh, and it's a lifelong practice, I think, of, of balancing care for oneself and really unlearning all the conditioning that tells us that self-care is selfish. Um, the conditioning of our parents' generation who, who, who are perhaps... Um, conditioned to think that way so there's a lot of unlearning I, I think that needs to happen for us to really 
truly believe in our heart of hearts that, that, that we are worthy of our own care and compassion. We're worthy of a good sleep, of taking a lunch break, of mm. uh, moving our body, of nourishing relationships, that we are worthy of all of these things. And the only person that can give it to us is, is us. We have to we have to be very proactive. We have to be proactive in our recovery, proactive in the way that we look after ourselves even more. And it's like it's not going to get any easier. It's going to get harder. Like before digital stuff come along, before TV come along, life was so much simpler, so much simpler. And we've got we have to now really look, uh, think of our own self-control, like the self-control is so important because there are so many opportunities and there are, there's lots of candy in this world, like literally and figuratively, lots of candy, lots of things that we can do that are interesting and we want them all. We want more. Everyone in this world wants more. We want more power. We want more of this. We want to be, etc. So we, we live in a more complex world and, and unfortunately it's not going to get simpler. As much as people try to make it simpler, it's going to get more complex as the world evolves, which is kind of scary in a way. One of the biggest lessons I learned back in 2013 when I was there is as part of, I wasn't being high performing, was really applying principles that are so important in sport to the the world of corporate life. So unless in a sport world, if you get fatigue wrong, if you get, so if you get recovery wrong and you're over fatigued, you have really strong triggers. You can't run as fast. Your reactions are slower. Uh, you can't lift as much. Um, your accuracy is not as consistent. So it's very, very strong triggers. You, you, it's, it's very black and white. When it comes to the corporate world, unless you have a really physical job um, or a catastrophic event occurs, Fatigue is more mental than than physical. It's a very much a mental fatigue and it is very slow and gradual and the body keeps adapting. So if it's a fast catastrophic fatigue, yes, you'll know, you will feel the trigger um, because you'll feel flat really fast, you know, like you get sick, right? Those times where you get sick and the body's telling you that you're not looking after it, man, you, you crash really fast and you know you've got recovery. You, you need to look after yourself. But normally it's gradual. And so it's so slow, the body keeps conditioning to it and you're going, okay, I feel normal, I feel normal, I feel normal. But internally, the body is declining a lot. And this is why we get a lot of people to depressive states, mental health issues, why it's becoming more and more and more is we are not proactively putting things in place to uh, ensure that we can prevent that. And that's why a lot of people get sick while they're on holidays. And so one of the big principles that is is we do in sport that is applicable and is relevant to all the research that's out there is that we need a, a work recovery ratio of three to one. So if you spend 45 minutes of really intense work on a project, you need 15 minutes of reduced intensity on your brain power before you can go back to that level and then you can hold it for about another 45 minutes to an hour. That's it. So, so brain power at high performance level, maximum 45 to 60 minutes before there's a decline. Now, if you have 15 minutes to 20 minutes recovery of, of brain power, you can bring it back to that level and do it again. So what's funny, right? Like this is, this is the, um, I'm trying to think of the word here. Uh, what's interesting is those who smoke and do smoko breaks actually got it right. 
from a mental fatigue point of view, they were able to get back to high performance because they would step outside the office every hour. They would go and have a smoke. They would socialize. So social was really important too. They would talk to someone else. Their brain power wouldn't be at the same level as what they were on a really intense project. Unfortunately, there were a whole lot of negatives that come to it. And, and as we know, most things in life, there is no perfect world because you think you found the best house in the world and it's next to the ocean next minute you got rust or it's really windy, right? So you can never find the perfect house. You can never create the perfect environment. But if you can, it doesn't mean you have to stop work every 15 to uh, every 45 minutes to an hour. It means you can switch from something really intense to maybe going for a walk, taking a phone call. It could be just shifting location. It might be going to get a glass of water, might be straight late. So there are different things you can do if you want to sustain high level. You can still sustain an okay level for an entire day if you don't if you don't take a break. You, you can, but your output and your performance is not going to be as high as it could be if you win in more interval base. Now, not only do you do that in a day, you do that over a week. Uh, and I love this in Australia because a lot of tradies will play golf on Wednesdays. So they kind of work for two, two and a half days really strong, then they play golf. And then they work another two, two and a half days, and then they have a day and a half off for the weekend. Okay, it's good. You're kind of working that three to one-ish ratio. Now, we should be trying to do this over, like say if you're a busy executive, if you're over three months, uh, say a four month period, if you've got three months that are really full on for uh, work, you're traveling lots, there's high stress loads, there's lots of meetings, et cetera, then the next, you need to bracket that next month to reduce the travel, maybe maybe knock off a bit early and spend some time with the kids or spend time for yourself. Uh, and for those who really want to be lifelong high performers, you need to be doing this in your career as well. And one of my best friends, I love it a bit, Angripa, uh, does this. She only takes CEO roles for five years and then she has one year off. And in those one years, she has uh, done her master's in Lausanne. Another time she set up a philanthropic foundation. Another time she mounted, uh, cycled the world with her friend, right? That is how you get longevity over a long period of time. Think about athletes. They do an Olympic cycle, then they have a few months off and they get lazy and they have a bit fat and they party and then they go again. They need some time to, to, to break away from it. So it's the same in in our world of work. And it can be challenging because you're not always in control of everything like an athlete maybe is, but you've got to try and be proactive about it. And you know what? You've got to be a bit selfish at times. You've got to block out your schedule and you've got to say, hey, look, I can't meet that day. I'm not available. Mm. Uh, you, you've got to be selfish. Why? Because for the long term, you you need that that rest or recovery or whatever, or you need less workload at that time for a reason so you can be sustainable over a long period of time. That is the key. And it's not going to be a perfect 45 minutes, 15 minutes. It's never going to be that. But try and keep it around that and just think the more intense the work that you do, the actually the bigger the ratio gets. So say you work one hour super intense, like like, like doing this podcast, for instance, this is 30 or maybe 40 minutes long, 45 minutes long. After this, I will probably need 45 minutes to 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 kind of um, de-energize from this before I can really go again. Because this is high, this is intense brain power here. Because I'm in giving mode and I like everything emotionally, thought processing is high. So I will need longer recovery after this. So there's mm. your secret, three to one. 
I love that ratio, Craig. I haven't heard that before. Three to one. I'm going to really think about my work week. I think I do that naturally because I do a lot of high energy like webinars and then I'll, I'll take a, at least a half an hour break. And so I, I think the three to one ratio is super valuable. And I love the point you make about smokos. Maybe we like need to rebrand them to Rechargos minus the cigarettes and vapes. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know what's interesting? People keep talking about the four-day work week, right? Mm. The problem with that is you're trying to compact everything in and you're trying to be highly productive, high-performing for four full days. I don't think they've seen the ramifications of that. Because one, what's going to happen is people are going to slip back to the same mode they were doing five days a week. So the productivity will drop and performance performance may stay, this, uh, may stay the same, but productivity will drop or you got to burn people out. And so they may think by having three days, it's actually going to be better for them. I'm not so sure. I am the one who's sitting on the fence here going, or oh, and, and and I can kind of foresee what's going to happen for a number of people if it's not managed well. Interesting. Well, that's one to watch. Well. Yeah, one to watch. Mm. Thank you so much, Craig. I, I know for sure that there's going to be so many listeners that take so many nuggets away from all that you shared today. And today is your birthday and then you spent this hour with me on a very special day for you so I'm so grateful as always I, I personally got a lot out of our conversation and I can't wait to share this episode with, with all my listeners thank you so much Craig uh, you're welcome uh, what an absolute pleasure and well done on creating such an amazing podcast where people can learn and you're serving people and make sure you get that recovery as well thanks Craig I will for sure by being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.